Our reading this evening is from the epistle of Paul to Titus and chapter 2. Epistle of Paul to Titus and chapter 2, and we commence at verse 1. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience, the aged women likewise, that they be in behaviour as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Amen. As ever we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his precious and infallible word. Amen. Well, this evening we are undertaking our second study in the epistle of Paul to Titus, having already completed a study of both Paul's letters to Timothy. And as I've mentioned before, these three epistles are often referred to jointly as the pastoral epistles, perhaps not only because they're addressed to two early Christian pastors, but also because they guide us as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors, those who lead God's people. We know that both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and we know that both of them had pastoral responsibility, Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And as we've observed before, Paul wrote to them, with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took places in the churches for which they were responsible would be pleasing and acceptable in God's sight. 
We know that some men in leadership positions had departed from the truth. So it was extremely important for men like Timothy and Titus to take a stand for the truth. In our first study in Titus, we saw how important it is for God's people to be led and taught by those who would hold fast the faithful word. Men of sound doctrine. There are many opponents of the gospel of God's grace on Crete, many opponents of sound doctrine. We're told that there were many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Titus was charged with ordaining elders in every city, men who had the right qualifications and qualities to superintend God's people, men whose lives matched up to their professions. There were false teachers on Crete who professed to know God, but who showed by their ungodly lives that that couldn't possibly be true. This evening we're going to consider the whole of Titus chapter 2, and we shall once more see the importance of sound teaching. The first verse of our chapter says this, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. And the last verse says, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And we're going to look at what things or matters Paul was referring to. Well, to any who are getting a bit fed up with messages about sound teaching, I can only say this, that if God's word speaks much about it, then it must be right for us to be much concerned about it too. Now, first of all, this evening, we need to understand that wholesome teaching, sound doctrine, promotes that spiritual health which manifests itself in obedient living. Doctrine of itself is of little benefit if it doesn't result in godly living. And we shall see that a good number of the verses we are studying this evening are primarily to do with how believers should conduct themselves. There is guidance for older men in the church, older women, younger women and younger men. And we see that older men should be exhorted to be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. All older people should set an example and older men are expected to be examples of temperance, not given to any sort of excess. They are to be dignified, grave, showing themselves to be worthy of respect. Older men are to exercise self-control, having discernment, being sober-minded. And they are to be sound in three different ways. They are to be sound in faith. There should be a steadiness about their faith which will be apparent to others. They are to be known for their charity, being sound in love for their saviour and for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they are to be sound in patience or patient endurance. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. And older men should demonstrate this endurance by 
persevere in it irrespective of what old age may bring to them. Now I don't know how old someone in a fellowship in our day and age would have to be to feel that what is taught here applies to them. In my former fellowship back in London, it might depend on whether you're selected to play for the old people's team or the young people's team. So we knew where we stood there. Could we say that men should know when they have reached an age when they should be setting an example to younger people? And what about older women? Those whom Paul says should, and I quote, be in behaviour as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Do women know when they are accounted to be older rather than younger? In our last study, we saw how the Christians had a reputation for being economical with the truth, for it was said of them that the Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. And when they're described as slow bellies, it's a reference to their self-indulgence whereby they idled away their time when they should have been more gainfully occupied. And it could be that this idleness resulted in some older women overindulging in wine and spending their time telling tales about others. If this was so, it would explain why Paul said that older women who profess faith should be in behaviour as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. We know that we can use our tongues for evil or for good. And instead of using their tongues to run others down, older ladies should use theirs in a way which becomes holiness. For example, by giving good advice to the younger women, by being teachers of good things. Paul told Titus that younger women who professed faith needed to be taught this, to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now we live in a society where in the name of supposed progress, we see that to some extent women are encouraged to do that which is contrary to the scriptures. How many married women today would agree with all that's being taught here in Titus? And do we not know of some who have adapted the standard wedding vows so that they didn't have to promise to obey their husbands? Now, what's very important for us to note here is the implication that any young women who disobey the teaching of scripture will bring the word of God into disrepute. People judge Christianity by how professing Christians live their lives and although it will ever be the case that unjust criticism will be levelled at us, we must take pains to ensure that no one can honestly serve us that we do not live in accordance with biblical standards. And we shall see how Paul continues to emphasise this point as we go through our chapter this evening. Now, when we studied 2 Timothy and chapter 2, we saw from verse 22 of that chapter that Timothy was charged to flee youthful lusts. And we noted then that young men needed to exercise control in more than one way. And here Paul tells his other protege, young men likewise exhort 
to be sober-minded. Again, referring to self-control. And he goes on to say, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. As a younger man himself, Titus was to set an example to other young men on Crete. He was, as it were, to be a pattern to be copied. You know, it's very important for any leader or leaders of the Lord's people to live exemplary lives, so that what he teaches corresponds with how he lives. When we studied 1 Timothy chapter 4, we saw from verse 12 of that chapter that Paul told Timothy this, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And we see him giving similar advice to Titus here, do we not? Titus was to be seen, to be a doer of God's word, and his teaching was to be known for its soundness in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, many of us feel that it's very sad that we haven't got an Elijah or a Jeremiah in our country, a man of God who could be called upon to speak on God's behalf on national matters. We do, regrettably, have men who say things that even the man in the street can see to be out of step with the word of God. And it should come as no surprise when such men are held up to ridicule. Their speech is unsound and it's rightly to be condemned. True men of God will be of sound speech, basing everything they teach on the scriptures. And their godly living, coupled with their sound doctrine, will put their critics to shame. There will be nothing that their opponents can honestly criticize them for now this doesn't mean that evil men will cease to criticize the people of God but rather that they will be unjustified in so doing any accusation of evil will be a falsehood when we studied 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1 we saw how Paul gave the following instructions to those who were in service and I quote let as many servants as are under the yoke Count their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And now, here in verses 9 and 10 of Titus 2, we see him teaching something very similar. Paul wrote this, Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. In New Testament times, and not that long ago in our own country, there were many master and servant relationships. Although such relationships still exist to a limited extent today, we need to understand that the principles taught here apply equally in employer-employee relationships. The most common form of working relationship that we have today and so we see how employees who are believers are to do what their employers expect of them provided always 
that this doesn't in any way conflict with their service to God. We see that in Paul's day, servants could be guilty of two things in particular. Answering back, which we might term back chat in modern parlance, and petty pilfering. And if believing servants desire to adorn their profession, then they were to be innocent of both those vices. They were to behave so as to be accounted trustworthy by their employers. Now, we can surely say that this should be true of us all, that we all should adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. All that we do or say should be to the glory of God. Our lives should adorn our profession. And having noted in our last study that all three persons in the Godhead cooperated to secure our salvation, we see this again when Paul here refers to the doctrine of God our Saviour. How blessed are those of us who can say, as did the Virgin Mary, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Salvation is something that can so easily be taken for granted those of us who have been believers for some years can perhaps be guilty of forgetting what we once were or of failing to appreciate the terrible price that was paid to secure our redemption. If we are saved, it's not because of any good in us. It's solely as a result of God being gracious to us, of showing mercy to us when all we deserved was to be justly held accountable for our sin. Salvation is all of grace. And we see this in the statement before us here in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. We've considered previously what the scriptures mean when they speak of all men. Our conclusion being that in many instances the expression refers to all sorts of men. Men and women from every walk of life. Paul has just been speaking of older men and women, younger men and women, and bond servants, and that all among them who profess faith should live lives which will reflect well on their profession and give no just cause for criticism. All who profess faith should live godly lives since the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, to all kinds of people. God has revealed himself in the gospel of his grace to all kinds of men and women. And the effect of the gospel of grace on the lives of the who are saved must be apparent. Otherwise, we have no reason to believe that grace has touched a person's life. The gospel of the grace of God teaches us this, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our saviour Jesus Christ and perhaps we might say that in these two verses we have the Christian life described in a nutshell now what does it mean to deny ungodliness and worldly lust well surely it means to say no to such things Believers are to say no to all those vices that characterise ungodliness, to say no to worldly desires. When people are converted, their hearts are changed, 
so that from that time onwards they have a different attitude towards sin, having a keener understanding of how sin offends God. They now know in their minds how ungodliness and worldly lusts are to be both spoken against and practically opposed, that they are to turn their backs on their old lives and live in newness of life in Christ. We know that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. As we've already seen this evening, believers mustn't give anyone just cause to criticise them. And we know how unbelievers scrutinise the behaviour of believers, do we not? Hoping to find some fault in them. We're being watched. And we should be seen to be living soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. We should be living like this primarily because this is the right way to live. But also because it witnesses to others of the power of God to change people's lives. And so this question arises, do those who are watching us have to admit that they see us living soberly, righteously and godly in this present world? Well, none of us are perfect, so we cannot expect to be perfect in our behaviour, but is the general tenor of our lives such that unbelievers will have no just cause to find fault with us and thus to indirectly find fault with our God? Do our lives witness to the transforming power of the Spirit of God? Now when Paul speaks of living soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, it's a reminder to us, is it not, that we won't be here forever. A better place awaits us, a place where we won't have to struggle every day fighting the world, the flesh and the devil. We will spend eternity in heaven having been perfected and no longer having those old natures which cause us so much grief whilst we're here on earth. And of course this is why believers are looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. We don't know when the Lord will return, whether it will be in our lifetime or, or after we're dead. But we should look forward to that day with eager expectation. Our hope is a blessed and a certain hope. For we have our Saviour's promise that he will return and take us to be with himself forever. In the last chapter of Peter's second epistle, we can see from verse 12 that Peter said what we should be like. We should be looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Some of us have come across some believers whose Christian lives, as it were, have centred around the Lord's return. Societies have been formed so that like-minded believers can share their views and their anticipation of the Lord's imminent coming again. Some of us, in taking a less fervent position, may have been guilty of not giving due weight to its importance. By this I mean that many of us may have concluded that because we cannot know when the Lord will return, we should just go on with our Christian lives 
and merely seek not to be found wanting when he does come. However, since the scripture speaks of looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, surely it behoves us to be praying earnestly for the Lord's return, that he will come quickly. Ought we not to share the position taken by the Apostle John, as we find it recorded in the last but one verse in the New Testament? The Lord Jesus said, Surely I come quickly. And John replied, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now we mustn't move on from verse 13 of Titus chapter 2 without seeing how it is one of the many places in Scripture which testify of the deity of Christ, referring as it does to the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. As is to be expected, perhaps there are those who maintain that this verse speaks here of both the Father and the Son, since we know that some are ever seeking to deny the Son's divinity. But the Greek text only contains one definite article, showing us only one person of the Godhead is being described here. Christ is both our God and our Saviour. Furthermore, the Greek text in the next verse, verse 14, contains singular pronouns which refer back to a single person in verse 13. Additionally, the New Testament nowhere speaks of the appearing or second coming of God the Father, but only of the Son. Now, I hope what I've just said hasn't been confusing, especially as we can all struggle to understand how one God exists in three persons, but the divinity of Christ is an essential element of the doctrine of the Trinity and we are to witness to this and testify of it at every opportunity. Now verse 14 of Titus 2 is a verse that explains the dual purpose of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, telling of how he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Christ gave himself for us, meaning that he both lived a perfect life for us and then laid down that life at Calvary for us. And there are several scriptures which testify of Christ giving of himself for his people. If you look at Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, you'll see that the Lord said of himself this, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. In the first chapter of Galatians, in verse 4, Paul speaks of how the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. And later on in that same chapter, in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul wrote this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in Ephesians 5 verse 2, Paul writes of how Christ, and I quote, hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God 
for a sweet-smelling savour. Our saviour gave himself for us, for our sins, to redeem us from all iniquity. He paid the price of our every sin. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. There is no sin that we have committed or will commit that hasn't been paid for. But we need to be reminded that this doesn't mean that we can live careless or casual Christian lives. We see this, do we not, from what Paul wrote to the believers at Rome. He wrote this, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Christ paid the price to set us free and to lead us away from all lawless living. He, and I quote, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Thus his second purpose in giving himself for us was to purify himself a people for his own possession. We also see that described in Ephesians 5 verses 25 to 27 where we're told this Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish and we see reference to it in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 where Peter explains that believers are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Now we do not know why God chose us but we do know what he expects from us having chosen us. We are to be zealous of good works, meaning that our service for God should be heartfelt and not out of constraint. We are not to serve God grudgingly, but zealously with all our hearts. Now, our chapter started with the words, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, and it ends with the words, these things speak and exalt and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. Having told Titus what he should be teaching and who needed instruction, Paul goes on to say how Titus should impress the truth on people. He was to speak with that authority that went with his position and those to whom he spoke should receive what he says as from the Lord and not to disregard what's been said. Those called to minister God's word must have as their aim that those who hear them will comprehend, will believe and will obey the word of God. This is the minister's responsibility and it's every hearer's responsibility to respond positively 
to what they hear. We have heard this evening that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we have heard how we should be zealous of good works. Well, may the Lord help us to be doers of his word and not hearers only. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.com. Dot co.uk